If you want, go ahead and um, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and grab it and uh, open to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 is where we'll be today. And we uh, are jumping back into our series called On the Way with the Resolute One. Um, we began in Luke 9.51 where it actually makes, Luke makes that statement um, that when the days were approaching for his ascension, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we said that as he is doing that, uh, Luke's not really going to take us geographically, you know, in your Google Maps and end up in Jerusalem. It's, he's going to be bouncing around. Um, he's actually also not even chronologically all the time exactly in order, although Luke is very ordered. Um, but the idea is that it's, it's always been in his mind, but now it's come forefront of mind that the time is drawing near. And there's going to be more and more, like we're going to see today, um, clearly exposing the difference between God's kingdom and his Messiah, who is Jesus, and the religious leadership that they've been looking to for leadership and to point them to God and to represent God. There's going to be more and more of these confrontations and clashes, particularly because they want to do away with him. And so he knows that. He's pressing toward Jerusalem where the cross awaits him. But also he is uh, turning his attention more and more to training those to whom he'd pass the baton and say, through you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my church and nothing's going to stop that. Um, and so today we're going to we're going to see uh, his, his men are, are most likely with him. So they're in the backdrop today, but they're taking it all in as to who is this one that, that they're following. Who is this one that has told them already a couple times he's headed to Jerusalem. And they're not getting it in their head. And so their categories are still like, wait, you're talking about suffering and death. And we're talking about Messiah and ruling and, you know, all of that. They had these aspirations in their mind. They wanted to be part of the greatness, if you will. Today, um, we're going to look at a lunch scene, but I'm going to say a couple things before we get to lunch, dinner, late afternoon. We're not exactly sure, but a leading Pharisee invites Jesus into his home, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But that theme of greatness uh, is, is here because there's, you and I are always dabbling with some aspect of greatness, Jesus, um, in both or in all the Gospels, would say, you know, greatness, if you, you want to be great, that's nothing wrong with that. It's just the timing and the track that you and I take to what true greatness is. And at first, you're going to say, like, buddy, you're way off. Like, what, what are you talking about? They're, he's going to expose their hypocrisy. Well, what I would say is put ourselves in their shoes. Often our hypocrisy is because we would like to have the perception of our greatness seen by you. So we'll put on airs. We'll put on a performance. We'll put on a mask. We will, you know, perform, if you will, so that you might esteem. I might do that so that you might esteem me um, as, as great or at least going in that direction. Um, and honestly, we, we're all um, born into this. If you'll look um, the next slide here, Andy Crouch, who's written one of the best books that I've read in the last couple of years. I would highly recommend it. Um, I'll stop short of saying I'll buy a copy for everybody because I can't afford that, but uh, it's, it's that good, uh, and it's called The Life We're Looking For. And the very first line of the book is this, recognition is the first human quest. Recognition is another way of saying, hey, you see me. You may not, as a baby, you're not going, hey, do you see me as great? <laughs> We're just looking to be recognized. In fact, uh, he would say that, and I have this picture. I don't think that's like fresh out of the oven, but maybe a couple days. Um, <laughs> that recognition is ac actually the task of infancy, Crouch says. He says, feeding, crying, even sleeping are just the support system for this most essential work of figuring out who we are and where we are by making contact with other people. And then listen to this, making contact with them, seeing them, seeing us. 
gradually beginning to build our sense of self through their eyes. In other words, I don't get to say, here I am, this is who I am. I'm looking into the eyes of another to begin to know who I am. God put it in us, this great first human quest. And um, they, other studies uh, have, have been shown, you've seen some of them, they're hard to watch sometimes, but they'll do things where they'll tell. Uh, in a very intact family, kid has had a lot of this, the baby's had a lot of this, but then they're like toddler age, and, and they tell the parent to act very disinterested and have a very blank face, and all of a sudden it puts the child in stress. And it's actually called recognition deprivation. And that is something that even if we've had an intact family and they've loved us, and, but as, you, as we grow up, we're also going, well, I know how you see me, but how do others see me? And um, one of our children even, in fact, this is a very common thing, um, especially in a household of boys. You got lots of costumes from Star Wars to superheroes or whatever, and one of ours one day said, had on one of the costumes is kind of, you know, not quite fitting and all that. Didn't look very superhero-ish, but he's like, I look like a hero. What was he doing? He was looking for who, who am I? What, what do I have to offer? And, you know, of course, as a good dad, you're like, you do look like that, son, or what, you know. I didn't give him too much of the, the fluff of our day, but, I, you know, you're trying to affirm him. But that is what we are questing for. And so it's not wrong to want to be great because I would put it in the, it's a very human thing that we're made in the image of God. You, there is um, that image bearing significance about every single human being and being made in his image and then coming to understand that he loves us with an unconditional eternal love is, is both what we sang, the welcome arms of our father. That's how he sees you and me. And yet, as we go along from toddler deprivation, you know, recognition deprivation to young child trying to figure out, am I, you know, where am I? Even to us today, we can be, you know, um, quite successful adults. We could have connectedness with friends, like genuine friends. We could have success in our career or whatever, and yet we can also quick, quickly have the slats kicked out from under us from comparison. And that happens most often, I didn't bring it up here, when we're staring at a little rectangular, rectangular screen or larger rectangular screen. Uh, it wouldn't surprise you if you've been here at any length of time that I am currently reading a book called Analog Christian. You should at least laugh at that, laugh at me, something. <laughs> Analog Christian by J. Kim. Um, and I want to show you a quote, because he's been looking at, um, lots of people are looking at the effects. We all know we're affected by our devices, our smartphones, social media. We know that. Some of us are like, yeah, yeah I know that, but I'll get to thinking about that tomorrow. Well, this guy was like, man, I realize that I might not even have that much of a you know, addiction yet, but boy, I am, I am knocked sideways this way, that, and the other by it at times. And so I've got two quotes up here, and then we're going to get into the passage because I want us to have, um, I want us to have this as backdrop when we're in, we're going to be in a very tense meal with Jesus and the Pharisees, but I want us to go, do I see myself in the story? How do I see the Pharisees? How does Jesus see them? How does Jesus, how do Jesus and the Pharisees see others? Okay. But right here, before we get into it, J. Kim in this analog Christian book, he says, um, he says, you know, we've talked a lot about that, that COVID-19, boy, it really just did a number on us. And there are lots of things we could say with it. Actually, there were things already moving, trending, already happening that just became accelerated or became revealed. And he would say that um, it wasn't just COVID-19 being uh, the, the pandemic and then everything came out of that. He said, he would say there was a pandemic already on the rise. And he said it would be one of self-centric despair. 
Now, some of you are like, dude, you are way off of Luke 14. I have no idea where you're going. Just stick with me. We'll try to get there, all right? But I want, here's why, here's why I'm doing this is because we would say this on any Sunday. We don't want this to be a history lesson of, you know, the Pharisees are the bad guys. They're kind of like Darth Vader and, and Jesus is kind of like Luke Skywalker. Like we could do that. And it's, it's, it's a nice history lesson and we could be distant from it. What I want to tell you is fight through that. Because you and I, from baby looking for recognition to you right now, whether you're 17, whether you're 32, whether you're 52, I think Mike joined me today. It's his birthday. You can, he hates it. Go tell him happy birthday later. Um, wherever we are, we are still going. Am I still somebody who is noticed? Am I still somebody who is worthy? Do I belong? All of that, right? And particularly now, the amount of time we spend here and here, that's, what, that's what's being affected, okay? So I'm trying to say self-centric despair, as he describes it, I think at least begins to put a finger on what is wrong. He says, as I pondered my decreasing levels of contentment, resilience, and wisdom, I felt that, Alongside the pervasiveness of digital influence on my everyday life, which is also why I'm bringing this up, where we spend most of our time existing, and I'm using the word on purpose, existing, is there. So let's let the Bible speak to where we're existing. I came to a few conclusions, and here's the first conclusion. I won't give you all of them. He said, much of my loss of contentment was connected to the persistent sense of self-centric despair I felt as I continued spiraling down the vortex of comparison loops and contempt systems found within social media. Here's why I'm using that. That's where we exist right now. That's where you're going to spend more time. Maybe some of you right now are tuning me out and you're doing it. That's okay. But that's where we exist. And what is it doing? And what is it putting by design? What is it putting into your mind and your understanding of who you are? how God sees you, and therefore, how do you see others? I, un, I made them bold and underlined them because I want you to see this is as old as back with Jesus and the Pharisees because what's, what's he going to expose? Comparison loops and contempt systems. The Pharisees, the word, uh, the name Pharisee comes from a word that means separatist. What, how do you become separatist? Well, that must mean that I have to at least see Myself as different than you. You are different than me, and therefore I am separate. Was it for a good motivation? Potentially. But then because of that, this comparison had to continually be volleyed back and forth in the mind or in conversation, in um, you know, how we connected or disconnected from one another. And particularly it was saying, I have contempt for you. That's why Jesus is invitation, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's why it resonated, because they were exhausted from the comparison. They were drained from the separatist holding it over them, and they held it on themselves, which is exactly what happens when I swipe, because I either become uh, sort of in the moment, like invigorated and kind of got a thrill, or I spiral downward going, why is it my life more like theirs? And we do, do a comparison loop again and again and again. So jump into Luke 14. Aren't you glad to get off of this <laughs> self-centric despair? Luke 14. What I want us to see there in the comparison loops of our lives where we begin envying upward and despising downward, that's exactly how the Pharisees lived. They invite Jesus over for a meal. One of the prominent ones does. Luke 14, 1 through 6, we're going to see a couple of different scenes within the same scene. Verses 1 through 6, let's read that. It says, It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. Okay, That word there, watching him closely, they were um, eyeing him. They had sinister intentions. Um, they were trying to be subtle about it. 
They were, but they had every intention of trapping him. How do we know that this is potentially what's going on? Well, they invited him on the Sabbath. And as it's on the screen there, the next verse, and as they're watching him closely, and there in front of him, Jesus, was a man suffering from dropsy. Basically, his, his um, body cavity was filled with fluids. Uh, it's, a, it's a very painful, difficult, and easy to spot affliction or ailment. And they put him, potentially, it just says there was a man. But the way Luke's, Luke writes this is, oh, this is all a setup. And so it's a trap that they've set at this meal. Uh, verse 3, Jesus is going to ask two questions. Notice first, and Jesus answered, answered, they didn't ask anything. Oh, no, he knows what's going through their mind. He knows what they're, what they're looking for. Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He puts them in a bind. He ups the tension. He sets the stage before he does anything with this man. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Because, see, in the law of Moses, it was not, it would not have been a violation of Mosaic law to heal someone or to, to minister in, in any kind of way like that that's helpful. It was not. But in their traditions and in what they had sort of scaffolding they'd built up around it with their traditions, oh yeah, you shouldn't do that now. So for them, the dilemma, the squeeze that Jesus puts on them before he even acts is, well, if we say, and he says, is it lawful? We say, well, yes. Then he'd say, why are you having a beef with me on each Sabbath that we somehow keep getting together and if I would do something like that. But if they say, no, it's not, then, because it, it's the Pharisees and his, this prominent Pharisee, several other Pharisees and his buddies, those he ran with in the upper echelon elite circles, Jesus, probably his disciples, and maybe a few others, because back then it would be weird to us, but you could just kind of creep on into the window and be watching. If they say, no, it's not lawful, they, for one, would not be truthful, and two, they would be seen as, man, you just are heartless. So what's their response? But they kept silent. And Jesus took hold of him. Uh, this is compassionate. This could even in include a hug. We don't know. It's not like uh, he's putting him down for a wrestling <laughs> pen or something. He just took hold of him, communicated compassion through touch, someone who wouldn't be touched. He took hold of him and healed him, and then he sent him away. He's moved in compassion to help this man in need. They're silent. He heals him, and he sends him away. And he does so because he says, he gives this man dignity by noticing him, approaching him, touching him, healing him, and then he helps maintain dignity, if you will, He's recognizing him as a person, so he sends him away so that he won't be used as a non-person prop, which is exactly who the Pharisees wanted him to be and the only way they saw him. You are only useful to us in that we could trap Jesus. So Jesus' second question, after he sent, mercifully heals and mercifully sends him away, he goes from the principle, okay, if this doesn't violate Sabbath principle in God's word, how about in your practice? He doesn't use those words, but that's what he's saying. He says, which one of you would have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And that was their practice. They would have rescued a son. And some of you might say, well, I would rescue my ox or my animal quicker than my son. Maybe let him feel it a little while, you know. But he touches the nerve of you can't, you're silent on the principle because you know that God's word doesn't prohibit this. 
that the Sabbath is actually, you know, made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And your nitpicking legalism is complete hypocrisy because you yourselves hold this over others. You are, you are so heavy on them and all the things you've got to do for the Sabbath and don't do on the Sabbath, and yet you will easily, conveniently put those things aside if it means something for you. And he exposes that they really have, as I said at the, the kind of the header of this, they have a misfocused energy. And going back to what I was saying earlier, they have a misfocused energy because they are all about the separate, the separate nature. In the comparison game, and everyone does it today, everyone did it then, we'd like to maintain what's a pretty good gig for us of your view and esteem of us and almost, well, not almost, your fear and falling all over yourself to make sure around us that you're following all, not just God's law, but all the other things we pile on. Jesus, Jesus is exposing, you have a misfocused energy, which can be seen because he doesn't use the word hypocrite, but it's hypocrisy. In this guise or this masquerading of, let's have a nice meal together, Jesus. It's the Sabbath, come on over. That's a masquerade for what's really going on in the heart. What you see on the surface, what you hear in all the Hear the, the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, though there are additions, we don't actually live up to them either. And so he exposes their hypocrisy. And then he's going to turn the tables on them again in the next section, 7 through 14. Jesus is going to turn the tables because they were watching him closely, but now he is going to be the one uh, looking on. Look at verse 7. And he began speaking a parable uh, to the invited guest when he noticed, so now he's looking, he noticed how they'd been picking out the places of honor at the table. And this is what Jesus says to them. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come up to you and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, instead, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he turns to the host. So that's what he says to everybody. Now he turns to the host. Hey, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers, or your relatives and your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that, um, that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, what Jesus notices as he looks around is this jockeying for, for position, this, this scramble for seats. And he's saying, don't do that. And, and on the surface, this would seem like, oh, this is Jesus's fireside chat of giving you some practical wisdom. Like, hey, do this, go sit at the last place, then you'll be invited up and man, you'll just have that glow about you because everyone was just like, wow, he got moved up. And there is practical wisdom in here, but that's not really what Jesus is after. He's really after the motive and the heart. He's really saying, you've got misplaced priorities. You, you are all about yourself. You were shot through with self-promoting. You are... You're looking to get the seats, and by the way, what this would look like, most likely, there have been a low table and these low couches that would usually seat three, sometimes you squeeze four or five on them, and there would be the host right in the middle of a you. Imagine a you coming toward you, you all, okay? And the host would be here, and the most honored guest would actually be on the left, and the next most honored guest would be on the right. 
So even you think about Jesus, the Last Supper, potentially Judas was on his left. We don't know that for sure. I don't think Peter was there. I think Peter was across, which is also funny to me. But the host would have been here, most honored guest. And then as you go down the U, and or if it was a bigger one, you probably had that table plus then some others, and you didn't even make the U, you know, you're kind of not the, um, the upper echelon. You're not the most honored. And so he looked around and saw this mad scramble. And the reality is that the inviter of you, the host, gets to place you where he or she wants. And there are going to be those who are more distinguished in you. So he says, recline at the last place so that the host may reseat you. Again, this is not a formula guarantee, but you are at least open up to the fitting possibility and not forcing your way to move up higher. And so Jesus notices that, and he knows, he says, let me expose what you're after. He had already silenced them, and probably at some point, the awkward silence got enough, and people were like, well, let's just find our seats. And then, interestingly, Jesus is the one who speaks up. He's not the host, but he speaks up, and he points this out. He says, you know, if you, if you do that, you go, you go get in the, the top place, and then the host says, well, I'm going to have to ask you to sit down there. My, my esteemed friend, which they would often do this, you show up fashionably late because you already kind of know, maybe even by the host, that you're going to be one of the honored ones. You kind of make that, you know, you do your peacock feathers, and you come to the seat near the host. He says, you don't want to have that walk of shame. You'd rather have the walk of honor. Um, I think about this from my history class at Auburn, Dr. Kicklider. Um, he's beloved professor. Hundreds would sit in his history classes, and he, um, the first couple rows, he would leave empty. This is about a, you know, 300 seat auditorium. And you were, he kind of, the first three, or first two rows were kind of empty, and then the next couple rows were honestly seats of honor for him. Like if he knew you, and it, or if someone had said, hey, my, my friend so-and-so, he would actually put you in these first couple of rows. I won't tell you if I was in those or not, because um, I will tell you that I experienced the walk of shame. So what would happen is if you were late to class, you would have to sit in the back. In particular, I remember one day it was, I was sitting in the back, like this is kind of the, uh, you know, extra seating. Um, and then when he's going to pass out your exams, then you had to come back to your seat because they were all in order of the seats or whatever. And I had to make the long walk. And this, this prof, he, we had a good relationship. He's like, well, Mr. Lyles, a little tardy this morning, I see. And he kept just talking to me until I got there. It was a walk of shame. And what Jesus is saying is when we're out there posturing ourselves, when we are, you know, jockeying, boxing out, and we can do that in all kinds of forms, He's saying, you realize that it's a good chance you may be reseated. And what he's after really is verse 11, which I put in the category of things Jesus says we don't really believe. In fact, if you, if you just nod off after anything before and anything after this, at least dial into verse 11. Look at verse 11, because this is the principle that lets us know there will be a reseating at the proper time. Verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. It is a principle all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And particularly, we can know that God will reseat. If you feel like, I never get recognized. I never am allowed into the inner circle. I'm never a part of this. He's saying, leave that in God's hands. Humble yourself before him, and he will exalt you at the proper time. He doesn't say he might. He says he will. But what's required to, in order for that to be a possibility is humbling ourselves. Humility just means a right estimation of self. It doesn't mean be Eeyore. Well, you know, I'm just all shucks. Nothing's ever, I'm not really that good. And like, Doug's up here playing the guitar phenomenally. If I came to him and said that, and he's like, well, you know, I mean, it, was, it was only God through me. Like, it's good to say that. God gave you the ability. But God gave you the ability. It's okay to be 
encouraged, right? So we can actually play the victim, play the woe is me, and that's just as much pride as the obvious easy. Oh, there's the arrogant, <laughs> the arrogant one. He's saying those who are exalting themselves, make themselves the center, are self-centric and make others, try to arrange others to, to be part of that self-centric agenda we have. He says, you will be humbled. But when we humble ourselves, we will be reseated at the proper time. And there will be repayment when he talks to the host. He's really just given a friendly rebuke saying, hey, broaden your associations. After all, a Pharisee is supposed to represent God. So he should do it in a way that pleases God and is a picture of him in terms of to whom do you extend hospitality? Nothing wrong, have the family over. Nothing wrong, have your business associate. He's not saying that. He's just saying, be willing and follow through with it to be hospitable to those that you'd really rather kind of leave off the guest list or not give five minutes to in the hallway at work because you have better things to climb and better people to talk to to help you get there. He's saying, extend hospitality to those who can't repay the favor. They would do this. We do this. Hey, I'm, you know, I invited you. So now you kind of are on the hook to invite me. And I, you know, got you that conversation to get that job. So you get me the conversation to get it. Like it's a tit for tat. It's a, I did this for you. And it's really a giving in order to get. And he's saying give because Daryl Bach would say the best hospitality is that which is given, not exchanged. Hospitality is generosity when no motive exists besides just the giving. And what does that hospitality do? It says, I see you. Others may exclude you. Others may look past you, but I see you. And I want to say you are welcome at my table. You are welcome to my time. You are welcome to my attention. You are welcome to my fascination as to what makes you tick. You are welcome to me saying, man, I ache with you because I know this is going on and I imagine that I cannot even imagine how you feel right now in this moment of loss. That is giving for the sheer beauty of giving so that the love of God might be expressed and enjoyed and experienced by that person feeling seen by you. Well, some guy burst out. We saw this a few weeks ago. A mom burst out in the crowd when everything got a little nervous around Jesus. Some guy in verse 15 goes, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And again, this, this to me sounds like bumper sticker. This sounds to me like I couldn't deal anymore with the discomfort of the, you know, God's word is right here. So let me say something that sounds kingdom-minded. Let me say something that sounds spiritual because I can't deal with the awkwardness of the moment. Um, Jesus doesn't shoot that guy down, but then that triggers him to tell the story. Well, let me, let me talk about that that meal in the kingdom. And particularly what he's gonna um, throw out there is this man potentially, uh, the prominent Pharisee who invited him and all of them, imagine, oh yeah, that, that meal in the kingdom will be there and we will be seated in places of honor. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Verse 16, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many and at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. Let me stop. Just like now, we've been getting these for graduation and weddings. There's, you know, there's kind of these waves, right? And we do this, save the date. And then here's the actual invitation, right? Save the date because we know you're busy people and we want to anchor some of your time. We'd love for you to come. So we're giving you notice. And then, then we send something that says, now RSVP by this time, right? By the way, um, this passage is not about Emily Post etiquette at all, <laughs> um, even though it's kind of couched as table manners. Um, but this is just a side note, but we are horrible nowadays at RSVPing. 
we are horrible about letting people know. I'm saying that myself. Like, and the same thing is actually ugly here, what I want you to see. They pretty much accepted the invitation when the first one went out and they didn't say, no, no, I got, you know, this going on. Because then when they, what they would do is say, okay, we told you it was going to be on this day and we've got the lamb ready and the whatever else ready. And they send the servants out to go say, now it's all ready, come on. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the, the language there is they all with one mind began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. That's odd to buy land you haven't looked at. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Again, that's a hefty expense. This talks of probably hundreds of acres of land and you didn't even bother trying them out and they're already, you know, they're already yours. And then uh, another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. He doesn't even excuse himself. He just says, I'm not coming. And the slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and into the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, master, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. This is the story of replaced guests. This man blurts out, kind of with the assumption in the room of, hey, when God brings his kingdom in its fullness and there's this kingdom meal, we're going to be there and we'll be at seats of honor because look at our lives. Look at how prominent we are. And Jesus is still extending the invitation to them. It's like, but you have to respond to the invitation. A little uh, history he's giving them here. He's saying, God is the ultimate host. He has sent you the law, the prophets, the writings. He has sent you prophets in person. The invitation has been to repent, to return to the Lord, to prepare yourself that the Lord is sending his anointed one. His kingdom will be coming. And now Jesus has said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the invitation is, we're ready to roll this forward. And they are one by one, like these folks in the parable, are excusing themselves. What they're really exposing is that, well, I'll be there unless something better comes along. I'll be there except for, I mean, this is kind of a legit thing. I got a lot going on in my life. So I'm, I'm excused. And these are really, I, I love that you can play with this a little bit. These are lame excuses that lead to invitations to the lame. That those who had God's word, taught God's word, knew God's word up here, but had not really received God and his word, but assumed they were God's, you know, precious ones, they're actually going to be replaced because they refuse the invitation. Jesus is still extending it right now to say, there's still time for you to receive my invitation. But it's about the generosity of the host, not their worthiness to come. And that's where, again, in clamoring for recognition, they thought, well, not only would we be seen in the eyes of men, but we'll have God on the hook because look at all that we've done to project this, you know, out there. And he says, no, you'll be replaced by others. And those others are ones that we might consider not so useful. That in our world of, you know, everything, let's have everything convenient and humming and efficient, um, would not be, they would not be so useful. Well, what I want to get to is so what, and I'm, I've thrown William for a curve back there. So what, and then we're going to sing and be done. The so what is going back to verse 11. 
Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's what I, I want first. I said I don't want it to be a history lesson, but I also want us to, to practice. Everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled. I want to ask the question, or I want us to see, why would a Pharisee live the way they're living? Well, they're after recognition. They're after they're after the, the, the God-given things he's put in us because we bear his image. Dignity, honor, personhood. We're made in the image of God. And therefore, we are his creation. So they're after that. So that's a God-given thing. And a fitting thing in the fitting, with the fitting approach and timing. So it's easy to go... Those Pharisees, yep, of course. Again, they're Darth Vader and the evil empire and all that. But what we need to recognize is our own propensity to exalt ourselves. Now, we're, we're smarter, more sophisticated. Not we're not smarter. I'm just saying we're trying to be more sophisticated in our subtleties about the pursuit of being exalted or, you know, getting people's affirmation being in the in crowd, etc. So we are like them. One of the ways that we are, um, as I was saying earlier, quoting J. Kim, is we, we pursue online projecting our, an image of ourselves, curating versions of ourselves that we know not to be true, so that all these other people we are finding ourselves jealous of or, well, I'm better than that. Like, what are we doing? We are trying to find our place at the social table. We are trying to find our place of significance and prominence. Why is it eating your lunch and mine? Because it's empty. Because it is the wrong approach, the wrong grasping for a right thing that God put in you and me. Um, so put up the pink wall. This is the pink wall. It's in Los Angeles. This is, an, this is a part of what I'm saying. Most of y'all aren't doing this, <laughs> but this speaks to that hunger within us, this clamoring within us for clout, which is another way of saying, I want to know that you think I matter. This is a pink wall, and literally, it is a pink wall. Have you seen it before? Okay. We have some Californians here now. Uh, they, they transplanted. This pink wall, so um, hashtag clout is just a way of tagging like, you know, hey, here's a scene in my life, hashtag clout. You know, I kind of got what it takes, right, whatever. Sometimes we're probably just making fun of that. Sometimes we're like actually trying to hope you think that, right? Interestingly, this pink wall is just a pink wall, outside of some business, but over two million times it has been tagged, uh, selfies have been taken here and have been tagged with hashtag clout. That same hashtag, not at the pink wall anymore, but um, that same one has been viewed on two billion TikTok videos. Why am I saying all this? I am not anti your device or my device. I am saying they're very telling, just like the scramble for seating of the Pharisees, we are scrambling and falling all over ourselves for this. Man, go take a picture of the pink wall. I'll think it's hilarious. <laughs> go take a picture, remember back at Duck Dynasty. Everybody went to the Duck Dynasty. That's nothing wrong with it. Take a great picture of your family on the Rocky Mountains and show God's beauty. All that's fine, but I am saying there is this clamoring for it that we need to wrestle with as Jesus talks about humbling ourselves. Because if we're not careful, we will mistake this and likes and followers, etc. Now I have arrived. Now I have clout. Now I have significance. Interestingly, those who reach it in our culture end up becoming more and more insular, more and more angry and feeling inconvenienced by anyone who wants to be in their life, even though they built their life on being seen publicly. And there's a hollowness that rings from it. 
So the other so what's, um, first Peter, we need to recognize that there will be a reseeding at the proper time. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. It's not wrong to wanna be great or be recognized to understand that we matter, but it is a matter of proper timing and the track we take. Um, seat taking in our days is something I've, I just, in my thoughts this week, seat taking in, in their day was one thing. Seat taking, taking in our day has become persona making, where we have these digitally curated versions of our lives in pursuit of self-promoting, desperate for the eyes and envies, uh, envy of others. But Mark 10, Jesus says to his men who are arguing about who's the greatest, he says, let this not be the way among you. Whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So my couple of questions in closing, and then we'll sing, is first of all, if recognition is that first human quest when you and I were born, God put that in us. And he did give you a mom and a dad to lock eyes with to say, you do matter. We love you more than we can even fathom ourselves. And to know that he, God himself, has a how much more father kind of love for you and for me. You throw that next slide up, William. How do you see him seeing you? Even as we go through this passage, my, my invitation, my, I'm not trying to guilt any of us. Mine is an invitation to free, being, being freed from the pursuit of self-promotion, the pursuit of clamoring for clout, and or the despair that comes from comparison. And rather, understand again, how does he, how do you see him seeing you? He doesn't, Jesus doesn't shake his head at you and like, ah, oh, I just, all I do is tolerate you. Now, his compassion, just like for the man in that room, is ignited for you when you're failing again and again, when you're struggling in sin, when you give your attention by the droves to this stuff or to the drive of your business or whatever that is out of whack. He is ignited with compassion for you, and he wants to free you and me from that. And then the last thing is, how do you see others? See, they saw that man with dropsy as only useful in that moment. Useful as a pawn and a tool to trap Jesus. Useful to promote themselves, to get rid of the competition, if you will. They saw the blind, the lame as outsiders. And then the, the end of that great banquet is actually the highways and the hedges is him referring to God's going to go outside the Jews to those you hate, Jews, the Gentiles those gnarly, disgusting Gentiles, and they're going to come in by the droves. And so that's a lesson to them. You think you're in, but you're not. But also, that's the heart of our Father and his welcome that Mike kind of kicked us into. And my question is, how do you and I see others? Is there a welcome in our hearts and, and, and that's helped by how we see others? Do you see others that are not like you and go, up? Oh, I'm going to tick up in my status. Oh, I'm not where you are, man. Your vacations are phenomenal. Mine, I don't, haven't had one in eight years. Whatever. And the, the, those who we think maybe shouldn't be invited in God's kingdom are invited. And a quote, uh, I don't know if you've seen Jesus. Have you all seen Jesus' Revolution? I highly recommend it. Even if nothing more, it'll just help your categories get shaken a little bit. This is back in... Late 60s, early 70s, the, the hippies are everywhere. And one of, the, one of the hippies actually became a Christian, and he sort of becomes this unofficial pastor. And he sits down with Chuck Smith, whose church was kind of old and stiff. And, um, and, and he really he told his daughter, he's like, Dad, you should listen to some hippies. He goes, if, if God brings me one, I'll listen. And then she plops one in his 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 chair. I'm not, I'm not stealing the stuff. I just want you to hear this one quote. And that guy sits down and, and he says, I know we must seem a little strange, but if you look a little deeper, if you look with love, you'll see a bunch of kids searching for all the right things. 
just in all the wrong places. There's sheep without a shepherd chasing hard after lies. And the trouble is, your people, and he just means you have been in the Christian game for a while, you people reject them. So I ask you, Pastor, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? We can only walk through doors open to us. And your church, well, that's a door that's shut. My question is, how do you see others? How do you see the next generation? Those who are in their 20s, those who are in high school, middle school, they're going to mess up. But just like you and me, we just have it in a more sophisticated pursuit. They're searching for all the right things, just in all the wrong places. And boy, I hope this church is a place that they're welcome. I hope that people who have their stuff and their histories and their skeletons, we wouldn't say, oh, we can't have you around here. We've got to keep things neat and tidy because that ain't the heart of the gospel. It's not the heart of our Father. And it's not the heart of the one who gave himself. I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're going to finish with the song they did at the end, Behold the Lamb. And we're actually going to take a little bit of Philippians 2, which is the quintessential passage you go to on humility, because Jesus himself, that lamb who gave himself for us, he did so not looking for his own self-interest, but out for the interest of others. He says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, basically who allowed himself to be a servant, even to the point of dying on a cross for you and for me. Would you stand? We're going to actually say part of it on the black slide there, William. We'll sing, and then Doug will tell you you're dismissed. Let's say this together. Let us do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Let us not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Let us have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let us behold the Lamb who gave his life for us and exalt his name above every name.